Welcome to the Spring Pledge Drive episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. Okay, so tonight I want to start with a pitch for the station. Valley Free Radio is a super unique place in a country that is increasingly controlled by a smaller and smaller number of huge corporations where no one seems to remember what the Sherman Antitrust Act is. Places like VFR are vital to the health of the local community and the nation as a whole. If you enjoy what I do and value that you can listen to it for free over the airways without the need for a computer or even a smartphone, and if you have a few extra dollars, it would be amazing if you would go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and contribute to our mission. All of the money goes directly to the actual upkeep and operation of the station. That's literally paying the rent on the station, the electricity bills, and all of the things that we need uh, equipment when something breaks. We don't have any paid positions. We are a completely volunteer-run station. And so because of that, we do rely upon our friends and neighbors in the community to help us stay on the air. And tonight, if you make a donation and uh, send an email to evidencebasedradio at gmail.com, I will shout you out on the next show. And if you donate more than $10, you can suggest a topic that you'd like me to research and write a show on. Though I do reserve the right to uh, say that there is either not enough information or it's not appropriate for the show. But I will absolutely uh, love to see if anybody has any suggestions. Um, I believe when you donate, there's also a little bit, a little place to put a note. Um, but definitely uh, an email to evidencebasedradio at gmail.com will absolutely get to me. Okay. Let us join our regularly scheduled programming for the moment. I'm going to start with a story that's more politics than science, but I thought it was really interesting. And uh, I hope that my friends at Civil Politics uh, won't be uh, upset that I'm kind of stepping on their toes a little bit on this, but it is kind of the confluence of uh, politics history, uh, food science, and all sorts of things. So I thought it was really interesting and great. A young woman named Mariella Williamson last fall, who last fall was a senior at Eagle Rock High School in Los Angeles, took on her school's ties to the milk industry. She set up a table in front of part of her school and gave out free stickers and cartons of oatly oak milk, oat milk, while extolling the environmental and ethical benefits of milk made not from cows, but from plants. 
Her classmates were excited to try the oat or pea protein-based samples she had on author. But when she tried to repeat her demonstration in the spring, she was told by school officials that she wouldn't be able to have a table unless she also gave out information about the potential health benefits of cow's milk. They cited a federal regulation that school-sanctioned activities could not, quote, directly or indirectly restrict the sale or marketing of cow's milk. That would counter the whole point of the campaign, Williams said. It felt wrong. So she didn't set up her pro-plant milk display that spring, but rather did something that I'm actually really proud of her for doing. She decided to sue the school, uh, the school board, and uh, also the uh, Department of Agriculture for violating her First Amendment rights to free speech. Now, this is a true free speech case. This is literally the government preventing the free expression of opinion by a citizen of this country. Now, I understand that corporations preventing free speech is a truly valid reason to have debate, but it is not a violation of the First Amendment, and it drives me crazy when members of our government try to act like it's equivalent to the state suppressing speech. Twitter is not a town common. (laughs) It's a back alley at this point, really. But I digress. Um, so yeah, she is really, I think, if, you know, judges actually followed the law, uh, anymore, that she would have an open and shut case because this is literally the state telling her that she has to be compelled to say things about milk that she does not believe in. And, um, so yeah. Williamson has filed a federal lawsuit against both the district and the Department of Agriculture, arguing that compelling her to distribute dairy propaganda is a violation of her right to free speech. And as I noted, it's pretty much the definition of compelled speech, which is also a violation. I didn't want to just sit there and be like, okay, I guess I can't do anything, she said. Now, her lawyer brings up the burgeoning conflict between the dairy industry and those making milk from plants. Um, and so you might have seen the really weird and off-putting, uh, commercial that they, that the milk, uh, lobby just put out, uh, with the fake commercial for wood milk. Um, and so, yeah. But I do want to establish where I stand on this. I hate actual milk. I would love, I don't drink any milk at all unless I am like in dire straits. Uh, I will go with soy milk or other alternatives any day for drinking. But that being said, I love everything made from milk. (laughs) I love getting ice cream made from local cows I know are well cared for and treated properly. I believe that small scale operations of well cared for livestock 
could continue to be viable in our future. But I'm also willing to be swayed by vegetarian and vegan alternatives that are comparable. I love butter, cheese, yogurt, and unfortunately, I'm not sure the alternatives are there yet, though some are better than others. Um, Now, that's because I rely heavily on what's available commercially. And so I often uh, kind of... Um, wistfully watch vegan videos of how to make different things that take like, you know, 22 ingredients and like three hours, but look delicious in the end. And I'm like, oh, I just, I just lack the energy to do that most days. Um, but the dairy industry is not something that I think has uh, the best interest of anyone other than the bottom line of dairy farmers. And so, um, you know, they're not concerned about the planet. They're not concerned about, uh, the fact that milk is a really weird thing <laughs> to drink. Um, they are just concerned with continuing to be able to support, uh, farms. And that would be, totally reasonable and completely understandable if these were all small hold farms like the ones that we see in the valley where it's, you know, a few dozen heads of cattle, uh, you know, that are clearly being well paid, well cared for, are clearly being given uh, pasture land to graze and, you know, I drive by cows every time I go to my office and it's lovely. They look happy and healthy and, um, you know, that I don't have a problem with. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the dairy industry. We're talking about giant factory farms owned by corporations that do not care about the welfare of their animals and that do not uh, even try to pretend that they are willing to work with people in order to decrease our dependence on milk products. And so as with any huge faith, faceless pitiless corporation, I'm excited to see someone stand up to them. <laughs> now, it turns out that this is actually not farmers' fault in the long term. So uh, it turns out that it's actually a remnant of a post-World War II era where milk became plentiful when it was no longer needed for the war effort. So during the war, people were encouraged to produce more milk. And then when the war ended and they were still producing more milk, they didn't know what to do. So rather than help farmers transition to other forms of farming or retrain them for other jobs, the government decided to give them a monopoly. And one of those monopolies was in the public school system. They also established programs like the Milk Price Support Program, which is a chunk of the farm subsidies that we lament over and question every time a farm bill authorization goes through. And 
Though, let's be honest there too, uh, farm subsidies are potentially a problem. Um, there's a lot that needs to be talked about when it comes to farm subsidies, but farm subsidies are still a drop in a buck in the bucket when it comes to the Defense Authorization Act every year. Um, and so all of this is literally a one drop of milk in a bucket compared to our military industrial complex spending. And so as much as this is an important thing to talk about, I do want to be, uh, I want to have that perspective on things. Um, I definitely think that it's way more okay to pay my neighborhood farmer, um, a little more than what their milk is worth than paying for uh, companies to create weapons that we don't even end up using and in some cases are literally rolled off of the um, rolled out of the factory and into the desert to rot uh, so yeah anyways it turns out that any school that participates in the National School Lunch Program, which was established in 1946, must provide two kinds of unflavored, low or non-fat fluid milk with every meal. Students can only get access to plant milk if they submit a doctor's note that states that they have a disability restricting their ability to drink cow's milk. Proponents will state that milk is being provided to students to assure that they're receiving access to proper nutrition. Nutrition, But modern medicine does not support the need for children over the age of two to drink milk for their health. It also turns out it might even be causing indirect harm. A study in 2020, from a study in 2020, it notes that milk does not indeed help children grow taller, but it might actually lead to be more susceptible to things like hip fractures later in life. Sorry, that it does indeed help them to grow taller. When looking at a global scale, areas with low milk consumption also have lower rates of hip fractures. There could obviously be confounding factors, but taller people are more prone to skeletal damage. For every additional serving a day of milk, a kid will grow maybe an extra centimeter of final adult height, notes David Ludwig, an endocrinologist at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. And tall stature is one of the greatest risks for bone fracture. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. Maybe that's why I'm so short. <laughs> I didn't like drinking milk when I was young. Now, all of this is before we even start talking about the issue of ethnic origin. Pretty much only those who have genes passed down from ancestors who lived in Northern Europe or some very small areas of Africa where they actually um, have been uh, pastoralists for a very long time they're the only ones who are even able to handle the lactose in milk once they're past the age of two. Around 68% of the global population is lactose intolerant. According to the National Institute of Health in the U.S., 95% of Asians, 60 to 80% of African Americans and Ashkenazi Jews, 80 to 100% of American Indians, and 50 to 80% of Hispanics 
are lactose intolerant. There would be reprisals if the United States were to put a product on the trays of white kids that caused potentially widespread adverse reactions, 31 members of Congress said in a letter in 2022 uh, to Agricultural Secretary Thomas Vilsack. And that is a big deal. And it is very upsetting. Now, I do have to point out that students aren't required to take or drink milk. It just has to be offered to them exclusively. Even water bottles can't be sold in the lunch line lest they be seen to interfere or suggest to be a substitute for cow's milk. And again, I cannot tell you how deeply weird it is that we even drink cow's milk as a species. No other mammals consume milk into adulthood. But of course, then I also can't imagine a world without ice cream, butter, cheese, yogurt. Like I said earlier, I'd be happy to eat really good substitutes for those things. But with the milk lobby so strong in DC, those exploring plant-based diets still have an uphill battle. And so we come back to the wild idea that students can only access soy milk alternatives via a doctor's note. It's ridiculous that a condition that affects 68% of the world would be considered a disability, said Deborah Press, Associate General Counsel for the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, a nonprofit that helped Williamson file her lawsuit. Now, this is a big part of this story, and I didn't want to go without saying it because it's very important. And it does kind of uh, go against my personal grain. Um, some of it is a little over the top for me, but uh, Williamson's activism is not solely her own. So uh, even though this is really cool that she's doing this, she is backed by... Uh, a couple of organizations that do have an agenda. Um, and so this is kind of one of those, I agree. And so I want to talk about it, but also I am a little bit skeptical of the overall goals uh, in the sense that I, um, you know, feel like a little bit more perspective is useful and so she was among more than 100 students across the country who participated in a day of action called Scary Dairy, organized by a nonprofit called Ravencore, which is headquartered in Portland, Oregon. Ravencore is a student-run organization, and they are currently running a campaign called Mind Over Milk. Now, the campaign outlines the pro problems with milk production and its monopoly on the school system, noting that much of the milk sent to schools is ultimately wasted as many students choose to abstain. And they also note, note that students who want alternatives besides needing a doctor's note may actually need to pay more, making this again a question of equity. Now, nothing they say is wrong, though some people might bristle at the frankness of it. Farm, factory farming isn't defensible from an ethical standpoint. It just isn't. Um, but, you know, despite the fact that I still eat some meat, I fully acknowledge that. Um, in the U.S., around 2% of all greenhouse gases are produced by dairy farming. 
And now this might seem like a small percentage, but there are other issues that compound it. Research suggests it takes 22 times more water and 26 times more land, as well as generates 10 times more harmful runoff into waterways than producing milks made from plants like soy, almond, oats, or rice. Now, the students know they have an uphill battle, but they're willing to work for it. Ideally, in the next dozens of years, I'd love to see cow's milk be replaced. But realistically, that's not an option right now, Williamson said. The goal of the lawsuit is to make plant-based milk an option for anyone who wants it, even if they're not lactose intolerant. They should be able to choose the more sustainable option. And that is where I 100% agree. I think it's ridiculous. Um, and you know, as a kid, I never even thought about it. Um, you know, I just looked at the milk. I was like, yeah, no, thank you. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, it's crazy. I just, I hadn't really thought about the fact that milk had this stranglehold on, uh, our nation's, uh, children's, uh, lunch menu options. So, um, I think that is crazy. And I think that alternative milks should absolutely have to be provided regardless of whether or not the student has a doctor's note saying that they are lactose intolerant. Um, because again, I'm just going to say, I think that pretty much any kind of uh, plant-based milk tastes better than regular milk, just straight milk to drink. So yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, before we move on to talk about some good news about the company Martin Screlly founded, I do want to remind you once again that this is our pledge week and we are heading into the home stretch. And so if you enjoy this and other shows on the station, consider donating at valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Being able to be part of such an eclectic and non-mainstream community of broadcasters has really been uh, great fun over the years. Uh, I don't agree with all of the people who broadcast on this station, but I fully support their right to be able to be heard and my right to be able to then uh, poo-poo some of their ideas. Um and, you know, but we, we still get along, um, because VFR is a community and, um, you know, we've had our problems over the years and those problems have been dealt with and people have been, um, you know, just continuing to come in who are such good people, um, and have such great ideas about programming. And I think that VFR is a just a great community. And again, it's run solely by volunteers, solely supported by the community. Um, you know, we have a few underwriters, but we don't have any commercial support in the sense of uh, being beholden to anyone except our listeners. So again, if you have a few extra dollars, please consider donating valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay. Let's talk about Viera, founded as Turing Pharmaceuticals. Oh, that drives me crazy every single time. Um, we're actually going to be talking about Alan Turing later on in the program in a more, uh, in a better way. Um, 
but it was founded as Turing Pharmaceuticals in 2014 by our least favorite pharma bro, Martin Screlly. And so on Wednesday, it filed for bankruptcy and I couldn't be happier, even if the reason isn't necessarily the one that I would prefer it to be. So Vieira's chief restructuring officer placed the blame squarely at the feet of Screlly, noting in court filings that... Upon information and belief, Screlly's actions have caused serious reputational harm to the companies and have hampered their ability to, among other things, open certain bank accounts, successfully commercialize new products, and either raise capital or consummate the sale of various assets, Perkins wrote in an affidavit. We all remember the heinous crimes committed by Screlly, including the ridiculous price inflation of a drug called Daraprim that was mainly used by patients with HIV. And of course, he didn't actually go to jail for being a soulless vampire. Uh, he actually went to jail for securities fraud. Uh, but he managed while in prison to continue to uh, direct the sale of Daraprim using a contraband cell phone. Uh, once again, there is one set of rules for the rich and one set of rules for the rest of us. And so he wasn't forced out of the company until January of 2020, when the FTC and a host of states' attorneys general sued Screlly and the company for antitrust violations after the company prevented possible generic manufacturers from obtaining needed ingredients for the drug. While the company settled, Screlly went to trial and lost big. He was banned from life from the pharma industry, though he's already pushed the boundaries on that with some sort of weird crypto uh, scheme that has to do with uh, drug development, and was ordered to pay around $65 million in disgorgement. Now again, sadly, the pro problems that led to the downfall of Viera were not in being forced to lower the price of Daraprim because they are soulless vultures, but rather the fact that the generic manufacturers finally got into the market. And those manufacturers are also charging in the hundreds of dollars now for a pill that once cost just $17.60 per tablet. As of this time, they've reported a net income loss for this year at $6.3 million, and they are facing yet more lawsuits. But not all is going bad on the pharma front, or should I say not all is going well on the pharma front, depending on your uh, perspective. If you're, you know, an actual reasonable person who doesn't believe that money should be involved in healthcare, then this is a pretty depressing uh, story. So even before they are set to do their own price gouging of the COVID-19 vaccine, Moderna has already made an excess of $680 million in the first quarter. That's above and beyond what they were expecting to make. Moderna CEO Stéphane Bansell is now a billionaire thanks to the pandemic. 
Last year, his salary was doubled to $1.5 million. And he also received higher bonuses and a stock option of nearly $393 million. This is just a grim reminder that we live in a broken country that doesn't understand the concept that access to healthcare should be a basic human right. And that when you have even one billionaire, you have a deeply broken system of financial security. So yeah, uh, this is unfortunate. Uh, I am extremely happy to hear about, uh, awful, uh, price gouging pharma companies going under. But unfortunately, the only thing that that shows is that they weren't big enough players in order to be able to successfully uh, gouge patients and be vampires upon the nation. (sighs) All right. So before we move on, I do want to give you Another friendly reminder that you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate if you have a few dollars to spare to help keep the rent paid and the lights on in our humble studio. And so we are actually now going to take a little break, do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to talk about chat, chat GPT for a second. Uh, so I am going to actually talk about it for a bit. So, uh, please stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence Based Radio. 
And as promised, we are now going to talk a bit about uh, chat GPT. And we're going to talk about what is an interesting and unsurprising problem uh, with these kinds of technologies. Now, I haven't talked about this too much yet because I really wanted to take some time to think about it and form a good opinion. My current opinion is that generative AI has a long way to go before it can really fool anyone who's looking closely. There are a variety of ways in which the technology is limited, but the most interesting to me uh, at the moment is its inability to tell a joke because it can only move forward in a sentence or paragraph, so it can't work backwards from a punchline. Now, of course, many people are concerned that it's the end of academia and creative jobs across the board. I'm less worried about that. Uh, I think that it will ultimately be a tool just like a calculator or any kind of other tool that we have. Um, you know, calculators were thought to be the end of mathematics uh, and clearly they weren't. And so the thing that I'm worried about is the fact that we, when it comes right down to it, don't really know how these tools actually work. Like they do things that we do not expect them to do. And they can't tell us about their thought process, really. They can tell us why they chose something in some respects, but we end up being perplexed and this is potentially worrisome. For instance, AI Go players have beaten top human ranked Go players, but one was recently beaten by a much less sophisticated algorithm that is easily defeated by even amateur humans. And this surprised the programmers. It turns out that the original system was trained by playing millions of games against itself. But even with that, it couldn't anticipate every strategy that someone might throw at it. So the other program just found the strategy that it hadn't thought of. KataGo generalizes well to many novel strategies, but it does get weaker the further away it gets from the games it saw during training, said Gleave. Our adversary has discovered one such off-distribution strategy that KataGo is particularly vulnerable to, but there are likely many others. Now, while this is interesting to the field of gameplay simulation AIs in uh, specifically, it's also has broader implications for AI as a whole. The research shows that the AI systems that seem to perform at a human level are often doing so in a very alien way, and so can fail in ways that are surprising to humans, explains Gleave. This result is entertaining in Go, but familiar but similar failures in safety critical systems could be dangerous. So for instance, think about the use of AI in self-driving cars. This research underscores the need for better automated testing of AI systems to find worst case failure modes, says Gleave, not just test average case performance. And so for instance, there was a video that recently came out where a self-driving Tesla saw a pedestrian in a crosswalk, decided that it could get through the crosswalk before the pedestrian would get to where the car would be. And so instead of stopping, blew through the pedestrian crosswalk. And that's not good um, because 
so many things could go wrong with that. Uh, and so, yeah. Now, what about the dreaded shadow of academic cheating? Well, a new pre-published paper by Stanford University suggests that creating a program to detect AI written text might be harder than we think. The team, including senior author James Zhu, a professor of biomedical data science at Stanford University and Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI Affiliate, notes that while the seven different detectors they examined were able to detect whether an essay was written by a U.S.-born eighth grader most of the time, the number dropped precipitously for students for whom English is not their native language. The classified, uh, the programs classified 61.22% of TOEFL essays as AI generated. That's not good. <laughs> All seven identified 18 of the 19 of the 91 TOEFL student essays or 19% as AI generated which doesn't sound bad until you realize that 89 of 91 or 97% were flagged as AI generated by at least one detector. It comes down to how detectors detect AI, said Zhu. They typically score based on a metric known as perplexity, which correlates with the sophistication of the writing, something in which non-native speakers are naturally going to trail their U.S.-born counterparts. Because non-native speakers tend to score lower on common perplexity measures, such as word usage and diversity and grammatical complexity, it's easy for the detectors to be fooled. These numbers pose serious questions about the objectivity of AI detectors and raise the potential that foreign-born students and workers might be unfairly accused of, or worse, penalized for cheating, Chu says, highlighting the team's ethical concerns. It also means that a sophisticated student could simply ask the AI generator to fix the language so that it more closely matches human writing by saying something like, quote, elevate the provided text by employing literary language, unquote. And so Zhu suggests that the tools are not yet ready to be deployed in settings with a large population of non-native English speakers. And there was actually a uh, short piece in the uh, Chronicle of Higher Ed, I think, recently about a professor who asked a uh, basically asked ChatGPT if it had written essays that students had turned in. Now, the problem with that is that ChatGPT is not designed to do that. And so he panicked a bunch of students who had actually written their essays to say that he was going to give them zeros because they had used ChatGPT. So I think that that is the more uh, problematic issue right now is the chaos derived from fear and confusion. And so, yeah. Um, interestingly, the, um, they suggest that it might be, uh, useful for AI to use some sort of watermark or clue in the generative AI text that lets someone know that it was written by an AI and not a human. 
The detectors are just too unreliable at this time, and the stakes are too high for the students to put our faith in these technologies without rigorous evaluation and significant refinements, Zhu says. Now, my last word on this is probably old-fashioned sounding, but I truly believe that the only person being cheated if a student turns in a paper written entirely by a chatbot is the student themselves. The point of learning is to absorb knowledge and form opinions about subjects and then articulate those opinions. If you're farming out your opinions to a chatbot, then you're missing out on one of the fundamental bedrocks of true education. And uh, on the other front, the one that I can think of people arguing is if you're not doing your own work, if you're just using chat GPT, then you are uh, in, say, a corporate setting, then you are, you know, uh, wasting your employer's money. And of course, I always say to that, do, do waste your employer's money as much as humanly possible. Um, <laughs> especially if you work for a large faceless corporation. Um, Please remember the uh, views and opinion statement (laughs) of VFR, that these are my views and my views only. (laughs) And so, yeah. Okay. We are now going to move on and talk about Alan Turing, as promised, uh, being once again proven correct. But before we do that, I would once again like to remind you that we are in the home stretch of our spring fun drive. And we'd love it if you could go to valleyfreeradio.org and help out however you can. Um, obviously, this isn't obligatory, but we do have all sorts of ways to support one-time donations, uh, um, reoccurring donations. We even have an Amazon wish list, which I didn't know we did. <laughs> so you learn a new thing every day. Um, and obviously we are completely supported by the community and, um, yeah. And again, this is only if you can, uh, obviously there are plenty of people who can and those who can't shouldn't. <laughs> so, uh, I do hope that you are all familiar with mathematician Alan Turing, who was basically just a genius polymath. Uh, but his life was cut short by the state's cruel suppression of homosexuals in England uh, in the post-World World, World War II era. Goodness. And unfortunately, it is a lesson that we seem to still not have fully learned. But Turing was amazing. He solved the German Enigma Code that basically helped the Allies win World War II. Um, He was a pioneer in contemplating how computers might someday prove that they were self-aware. And also, apparently, he has once again been vindicated in his model of how certain patterns in nature arise. And so, yeah, he won World War II, and then uh, the English government uh, had him forcibly castrated. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's 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 a lot, um, and it's it's hard, especially in the modern day. Um, and so, we've actually previously talked. Let's let's get back. Uh, to this theory in regards to striping in animals. But a new experiment uses chia seeds to track down 
this theory in regards to uh, plant growth. Growth. In 1952, he published his one and only paper, The Chemical Basis of Morphogenesis in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society of London B um, for Biological Sciences. In the paper, he suggested that patterns arrive in arise in nature due to chemical reactions between two homogeneous substances, or as the researchers put it, a mechanism by which small random perturbations from an initially homogeneous equilibrium state could cause the development of complex spatial patterns in certain reaction diffusion systems, which is a lot, but it basically means uh, that when you have something that is the same, but there is a, uh, there is something else that is in sort of push and pull with it, then you get certain patterns. And so these patterns are seen in things like, again, the stripes of a zebra, but also in the way that plants grow and also in plants themselves, such as in the ridges on a cactus. And also in the pattern of chia sprouts, which is what this um, system, this uh, research used. And so Brendan Dacchino, a computer science undergrad at Northeastern University, worked with Flavio Fenton, professor of physics at Georgia Tech, this past summer testing Turing's theory. The researchers planted chia seeds evenly in eight separate trays using different methods of planting and watering daily. They also used three different growing methods for the seeds. We varied the amount of water each tray received and the level of levels of evaporation for each tray by covering half of them with saran wrap and leaving the rest open, Takino told Live Science. We also planted the seeds in different types of substrates, including a thick coconut fiber that represents low diffusivity since it's harder for the water to move around and paper towels where the water can diffuse faster. What they found was that the patterns of growth closely resembled computer simulations of the Turing model. And they also found that the amount of water and evaporation affected the size and distribution of those patterns. There were some sweet spots, Dacchino said. If you had too little water, then you got no vegetation, but if you have too much, then you get a forest. The team presented their work at this this year's American Physical Society meeting. In previous studies, said Dacchino, people kind of retroactively fit models to observe turning, turning patterns that they found in the world. But here we were actually able to show that changing the relevant parameters in the model produces experimental results that we would expect. And so this is yet another example of the brilliance of Alan Turing. Turing. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm having trouble pronouncing things today for some odd reason. And an enduring mark of the cruelty of bigotry that destroys lives. Now, not everyone can be as brilliant as Turing, but everyone deserves to have their basic human rights respected, regardless of any kinds of innate traits or actions or belief systems. And, you know, it feels right now as if this country is regressing and that's scary, but we have to have hope that the true majority of people will find a way to push back 
on the cruelty and lies being told about communities by those who seek to divide us and distract us from the fact that our only real enemies are the oligarchs who exploit people and labor for their own gain. Okay, so uh, once again, uh, I do want to remind you that we do not have any oligarchs that support us. <laughs> uh, and so we do rely on the community. And so um, everything you hear on this radio station is funded by viewers like you to shamelessly steal a great phrase. <laughs> and so uh, if you could go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, um, that would be really awesome um, because I do enjoy being on the station and, um, you know, podcasting is the cool new thing, but radio has been around for so long and it's been so important to people who, you know, can't necessarily get to computers or smartphones or things like that. There are still people in this country who don't have access to those things. And I think we often don't think about that. And so for a lot of people, radio is one of the most accessible forms of media information of entertainment, of all sorts of things. And it's only made possible by the support of the community. All right. So let's finish up tonight with a really cool new invention that has the potential to be a game changing changer for people in the world who don't have access to clean drinking water. That's nearly 30% of the world's population or more than two billion people who drink contaminated water pretty much all the time. But now a team at Stanford have published their discovery in the journal Nature Water. Waterborne diseases are responsible for 2 million deaths annually, the majority in children under the age of five, the study co-leader author Tong Wu, a former postdoctoral scholar of material science and engineering in the Stanford School of Engineering noted, we believe that our novel technology will facilitate revolutionary changes in water disinfection and inspire more innovations in this exciting interdisciplinary field. So right now, the solutions for cleaning water are either chemicals, which can produce toxic byproducts, ultraviolet light, which requires both time and electricity, or filters such as, you know, life straws, which are not practical on any kind of the scale needed to be really impactful. And so the team's invention is a harmless metallic powder that absorbs both UV and high energy visible light from the sun and consists of nanoflakes of aluminum oxide, molybdenum sulfide, copper, and iron oxide. I always used to produce, pronounce molybdenum molybendum. <laughs> um, so I always still have a little bit of trouble saying that. We only used a tiny amount of these materials, said senior author Yi Kui, a Fortinet Founders Professor of MSE and of Energy Science and Engineering in the Stanford Door School of Sustainability. 
The materials are low cost and fairly abundant. The key innovation is that when immersed in water, they all function together. And so by absorbing photons from the sun, the molybdenum sulfide copper catalyst performs like a semiconductor metal junction, which enables photons to dislodge electrons. And the resulting reaction generates hydrogen peroxide and hydroxyl radicals, which are a, um, they are a isotope of, um, oxygen and they are apparently real bad news to, uh, cell membranes. So these kill the bacteria by, uh, doing serious damage to the cell membranes. The team used a 200 millimeter beaker of room temperature water contaminated with around 1 million E. coli per milliliter. We stirred the powder into the contaminated water, said co-lead author Beaufay Liu, a former MSc postdoc. Then we carried out the disinfection test on the Stanford campus in real sunlight, and within 60 seconds, no live bacteria were detected. Because they're nanoflakes, the particles are able to quickly move in the water and make contact with the bacteria, killing them quickly, with the chemical reaction also dissipating quickly. It's very quick. <laughs> the lifetime of hydrogen peroxide and hydroxyl radicals is very short, Quee said. If they don't immediately find bacteria to oxidize, the chemicals break down into water and oxygen and are discarded within seconds. So you can drink the water right away. And even better is the fact that the iron oxide allows the powder to be collected and recycled for further use. Using a magnet to collect it, the researchers were able to reuse the same powder 30 times on 30 different samples of contaminated water. And even more importantly, it's scalable and may be able to be used in wastewater treatment plants. During the day, the plant can use visible sunlight, which would work much faster than UV and would probably save energy, Kui said. The nanoflakes are fairly easy to make and can be rapidly scaled up by the ton. And so the next steps are for the lab to test their powder on other pathogens, including viruses, protozoa, and parasites. All right. Um, I do really appreciate you uh, listening. And I do really appreciate you listening on a day where I, uh, you know, have to ask you to think about helping us out. Um, but I do that gladly because I know that we have such a great community that does reach out and does support, uh, Valley Free Radio. We've been doing really well each year, uh, as I have been part of the studio. I mean, I've been part of VFR for over 10 years now. And so that really just shows how important it is to me and how much I have loved doing this, even though I know that uh, there was a, there was a bit there where I was really struggling uh, to find my footing again. I had felt pretty burned out, but um, you know, Doing this show is so important to me. And I think it's such a, um, you know, kind of, I do think it's a good con uh, contribution to the shows that we offer. 
Um, I know some of my uh, colleagues have shows that are a little less skeptical than mine. Um, and I do like the fact that I get to kind of be a counterpoint to that. And also, there's just so many good music shows. Uh, never mind the talk shows. Uh, so much good music that you would not hear on any mainstream radio show. So uh, just one more final pitch for... Uh, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate alright that is all the time we have for tonight thank you so much for joining me on evidence based radio evidence based radio is a member of the planetside podcast network to learn more go to planetsidepodcasts.com the theme song is widgen by bird boy Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.